that, okay? Get used to it. I'm going to be very honest with you all this morning. Picking a passage from Scripture for this particular subject, and the title of, of the sermon, of course, is He Descended into Hell. This may be the most difficult choice that I have ever had to make for, for Scripture. Now, now, some choices are tough because you've got so many possibilities. It's quite hard to be able to just pick one. So I try to incorporate as many passages as I possibly can throughout the sermon to help offset what I can't use initially. This statement, he descended into hell, in and of itself is somewhat controversial. My previous church in Florida, the session that they had 30, 35 years ago, it was in the early 80s, actually had this particular statement removed. And while that's not a popular decision by a lot of churches, I'm sure First Presbyterian Church of Frostproof, Florida is not the only one that's ever done this. But I mean, think about it. Think about this. Who do we normally associate hell with? Folks who aren't Christians. Folks who, who live a life of crime and sinfulness, right? Us! All of us, without the grace and mercy of God in our lives, we're talking about us when we talk about hell. Now, we don't normally think about so many good Bible-based believers who, who've touched all of our lives in some positive way to be in a place like hell, do we? I mean, it just doesn't register with us to do it like that. And yet, what's one of our most basic beliefs that we find in the Apostles' Creed? He, meaning Jesus, descended into hell. Just doesn't work in our minds. And what makes this more difficult to defend is that it isn't in the Bible. To that end, history shows us that that statement was not in the earliest renditions of the Apostles' Creed. There, there was no single council in those days that came to conclusions of what the Apostles' Creed should say. The Nicene Creed, for instance, was written in the Council of Nicaea. It was a fairly long, comprehensive statement of faith, but comprehensive just the same. It covered just about every facet of what we believe to be true in the Scriptures. The Apostles' Creed, though, took time to concoct. There, there was no council or, or church that authored it. If you look at the early, Greek early form of creed, you'll find that it was an actual statement that Jesus descended into Hades, H-A-D-E-S. Early writers took that to mean that Jesus basically descended into the grave. That's a statement that I think no one anywhere will have a problem with. Go back to Hades for just a second. We see that a popular uh, description of what Hades, or even hell for that matter in Jesus' time, could be referring to a place called Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Matthew 5.22 and 5.29, for instance, I think has a couple of places we see the term hell used in a lot of translations. But the Greek word for hell in those particular instances was Gehenna. Gehenna was a trash dump outside the city of Jerusalem that burned continuously, day and night. It was an unpleasant place, and it burned on and on and on. It was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. 
However, before garbage was burned there, it is said that some pagan religions used this pit, and I hate to say it, but they used that pit to sacrifice their children. Jeremiah 19, verses 4 through 6, even alludes to this type of pagan religion. I mean, I, I, I can't understand that kind of, of thinking myself, and yet there were many who were parts of that. Um, as a matter of fact, I've done a little work on, on instrumental music in the church. Fiddles were used. Numbers of fiddles were used in religions like that. Why? To mask the screams. Can you imagine that? I mean, I just can't. And yet, that was common practice back then. Anyway, we'll get off that subject. I don't like it. But Hades can, it can mean a place of hopelessness for us, or perhaps maybe to us, words that we might be able to deal with, a place of the unknown. See everybody looking up. They're not dropping anything. Huh? <laughs> it was a place for the dead. If you look at last week's statement that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, I don't think that the term descended into hell was meant to reiterate what was already being said. This is the what happened after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Some believe the literal words, Jesus went into hell. I've heard that many times from folks. He went there to bring people back uh, to Him to save those who were lost not true as much as a lot of people would like to believe that. I read one that said that Jesus had a place called paradise created for him in Hades and, and he preached to the spirits who were already dead. And the Old Testament believers were, were taken there as, as well as the thief on the cross. I'm not sure though where faithful like Moses and Abraham and all would have been for thousands of years before that paradise came into be for there is no mention of paradise previous to Christ being on the cross, except one place. Solomon 4, verse 13. And the translation for paradise in that was an orchard of all things. So I think we can safely say it wasn't meant to be the same type of paradise. And yet if you look at Matthew 27, 50 through 52, you're going to see an interesting statement made here. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Now listen to that very careful, okay? They were raised to life. Verse 53, same chapter says this. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people after Jesus' resurrection. That begs the question, where were they during those three days that Jesus was in the grave? Now, I have for many years believed that the true definition of hell was a separation from God. And if that was the case, we could have ended this five minutes ago. We could have been, you know, on the way home. And fundamentally, while that may be true, I believe there's more to it than that. stop right here and say one thing. I did something with this sermon, and I wrote this about a month ago, but I did something with this sermon I have never done before. I sent it to the session, sent it to Fred, Brett, and Kirk, 
and I asked them their opinion. Was I going down a rabbit trail? Was I going down the right road? How, you know, was this the right way to approach this? Because what I'm going to be saying here is somewhat radical. So you're going to have to listen closely with an open mind and an open heart. But I, I've never done that before. I've always just preached what the Lord sent me. But this one, I just... Just it, it's like a three foot putt that you can't get comfortable over, you know. You look at it and you look at it and you're you're still not sure, even when you hit it and it goes in the hole. You still weren't sure that was the right thing. But that that's kind of the way this was. I just wasn't totally comfortable looking at this particular subject the way I was. But anyway, be that as it may. I want to look at a couple of explanations of this somewhat simple yet I feel like complicated statement, he descended into hell. John Calvin wrote many years ago that Christ descending into hell refers to the fact that he not only died a bodily death, but at that time it was expedient for him to undergo the severity of God's vengeance, to appease his wrath, and satisfy his judgment. Not towards Christ, okay, but if you look at it, he took on all of our sins, and so he, he had to do this. This was something that could not be removed. It could not be brought around Jesus. It, it had to be done in the way that it was done. Now, knowing how I sin, just me alone, forget all of you all, how I sin alone, my sin alone would have been enough for Christ to have endured a great deal of pain. From the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 44. The question is asked, why does the creed add he descended into hell? Good question, right? Straightforward. Answer, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish and pain and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Did you hear that? Me was mentioned twice in there. But you see what Christ had to do for me. That's basically what it's saying here, okay? In other words, to remind me that He has already been through what we have to go through, no matter how difficult it might be on the face of this earth. Perhaps this question 44 takes us back to the cross where Jesus is heard to utter as we see in our scripture reading for this morning from Mark 15, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while these words, words should send a chill down our spine and bring tears to our eyes when we read them or when we hear them, remember this, these were not, uh, these were not the first time these words were spoken in the scriptures. Go back to Psalm 22, verse 1, and you're going to see the same words. But I'll take it even further. If you look at Psalm 22, verse 18, you are going to see, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. These are words of prophecy, folks. Even while on the cross of pain and shame, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. He was doing more than letting us know that He was experiencing the same feelings of hell that we do so often in our lives. Some say that His suffering was, was done in... It was a spiritual suffering. I don't disagree with that. 
the torment of experiencing God's wrath for the sins of his people, the utter hopelessness of losing his father's blessing at that precise moment had to be hell in itself. Christ was alone at that time, and he was in great pain. Now, I'm not belittling the words of Jesus here. Do not get me wrong. I'm just saying that these words of utterly feeling alone were arguably Jesus' words. He knew what to say at just the right time as prophecy fulfillment. But he also knew and understood our pain. There's no, there's no experience of desolation, loneliness, pain, sorrow, or death open to any of us that Jesus did not personally already experience for us. There was fear. The fear of being left alone. Death for Jesus was a very real presence where He was on the cross. But let's stop right there and ask this question. Without Christ, would you fear death? Think about that for a minute. I knew a fine Christian woman many years ago. It was in her last days. I talked some about the important things that concerned her. Her, her family, things like that we talked about. It. And then we finally got to the question of her eternal well-being. And I already knew the answer to this, but she wanted to talk about it. Oh, she said, I, I'm not afraid to die because I know where I'm going to go. I'm really afraid to die because I don't know what that's like. I mean, let's face it. It's something that we do one time. We don't even get a chance to get used to it or try to perfect it. We got one shot at it and that's it. It's like being born. <laughs> We're here. There you are. Not much we have to say about it at all. But for death, the question will be, are we ready for what happens after this life is over? You see, eternal life for all of us has already begun. It begun, it began at our conception. It's where we will spend the rest of this life that we are given when we leave here. That's what ought to concern us. But don't you see our second passage of Scripture this morning in, in Hebrews 2? It tells us that we need not fear that part of it. We need not fear death. For you see, Jesus did endure hell for each of us. However, while it's still true that Christ did these things for us, it doesn't fully explain the words, He descended. Let's look at another catechism we're perhaps a little more familiar with. Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 50. The question is, wherein consisted Christ, consisted Christ's humiliation after His death? That's good old 1600 words there. The answer, Christ's humiliation after His death consisted in His being buried and continuing in the state of being dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been expressed in these words, He descended into hell. Okay? In other words, as we alluded to earlier, He was sent into the state of being dead. Yet to say that he was crucified, dead, and buried and descended into being dead is a little odd. So they had to come up with something a little bit different. Being dead does not fit the definition of what we, you and me, 
of what we perceive as hell. It doesn't. Nor does it normally fit what we see in the Scriptures. Another Scripture. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 9 for a second. It says here, What does He ascended mean except that He also descended to the earthly lower regions? He descended into hell, right? Not so fast. What did Christ do before He ascended into heaven? He descended to earth the first time as He was born of the Virgin, remember, a few weeks ago. Sure. Philippians 2, verse 7. Jesus, in coming to earth, basically, as it says in the NIV, became nothing, becoming the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He even became obedient to death. Yes, death on the cross. No mention anywhere that I see of going to hell to do anything here, okay? Even Peter, 1 Peter 1, 3, 18 through 20, does not entirely explain what had happened. And let me read this passage for you, okay? You've got this in your, uh, in your order of worship. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when Christ or when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Aha! We got an answer right there, you might think. My question here would be, why did he just do that in Noah's time? Why didn't he follow his own command to go and teach and preach the gospel to every creature for throughout the ages? He wouldn't even be following what he said to throw us to them. Possible answer that might be, and this, this comes from Augustine. This is a couple of years ago, maybe back in 4 AD, I think. So it's, it's got a little age to it, but it still holds its own here. It's possible that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, went and attempted to preach to the lost in Noah's day. 1 Peter 1.11 says that the Spirit of Christ worked through the prophets. Did you hear that? The Spirit of Christ worked through the prophets. It would only make sense then that that Spirit could preach to the lost in Noah's time. There are other points in, in Peter's writings that would seem to back that thinking up as well, but we're running short on time. 1 Peter 1, 4, or 1 Peter 4, verse 6, though, he warns of living in the flesh and not living in the Spirit. So there's an emphasis on the Spirit here. To get right down to it, there is nothing specific in the Scriptures that alludes to Christ descending into our classic understanding of hell at any point in time. Is there anything that we can read in the Bible that would lend itself to, to keeping this phrase in the creed? Not really. No. And really, in fact, John 19 verse 30, when Jesus says it's finished, that should tell us that His work here on earth up to that point was complete. Again, look Luke 23 43, when Jesus tells the thief on the cross that today He would be with Him in paradise. No reason there to believe they went to purgatory together. Which, by the way, is a place that unequivocally does not exist. That ought to raise some eyebrows in other religions, huh? 
It's, it's a place made up by a man. They're going to love this even more. It's a place made up by a man to take people's money, plain and simple. There was no special place that people went to before they went to heaven by any other name. Luke 23, 46, Jesus says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Not, well, I'm ready to take the next big step. Now, if you're ready to take me, I'm, I'm ready to go. Wherever that might be, whatever it might look like, it wasn't said like that at all. But, and this is a big but here, there is one place that we can look to or look at to see if there is any time and uh, what would take place after death. And I want to read this one to you as well. This is also in your uh, order of worship. 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4. through 4. Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Okay. The third heaven. I know a man in Christ. I don't know if he was in the body or not. God knows, certainly. Was caught up to paradise. Is this a clear-cut answer? I doubt it. <laughs> but it does lend some credence as to where we would or might go after death, at least for those who are in Christ. These things point out to us God, uh, not going into a holding place or, or anywhere else, but into the arms of our Heavenly Father when we die. If we're believers in the one who raised His Son from the dead. Again, for those who are lost, it sounds more to me like hell is, is where those who will go, or who are lost, who will go. A place that Jesus talked about again in Matthew 5. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. gets a little bit more in depth about that destination. Let me tell you, if you haven't read it, you don't want to go there, okay? Suffice it to say, as we said throughout this sermon, Christ went through all of this so we do not have to. And know that without Christ in our life, we will experience the eternal pains of hell. I don't know, maybe the elders at Frostproof many years ago knew what they were doing when they removed this phrase. I really can't say. We're going to close with this. I read a story once about a couple that was on vacation and enjoyed going to churches in the area, wherever they went, especially on Sunday mornings. If I've told you all this, just pretend like you haven't heard it, okay? But... They went to, to one old Presbyterian church one morning, and, and lo and behold, when they got to the Apostles' Creed, everyone stood up, and without saying a word, they all turned to their right, facing a blank wall. Not knowing what else to do, the, the couple did the same thing. Coming back through the town a, a few weeks later on their way home, they decided to go back to this same church, and, well, it happened again. Everyone stood for the Apostles' Creed. Before they recited it, everybody turned to the right, looked at a blank wall, and repeated the Apostles' Creed. This couple got very curious as they were sitting there. And after church, they decided to ask the pastor. Well, he had no idea. 
Everybody had been doing it since he had been there, so he just decided to go ahead and do it as well. That was all he did. They asked a few others who maybe had a little age to them, a little long in the tooth, you might say, and they all gave the same response. We really don't know. We've just always done it. And yet, no one really knew why they did it, except for one lady, and everybody kept saying, you go talk to Miss Mary. She might be able to tell you. And here she is, about 100 years old. She's in a wheelchair, had somebody moving her, you know. And they all, they asked, just go ask Miss Mary. And so they did. And she began to laugh when they asked the question. Seems 75 or 80 years ago, she didn't quite remember, the old preacher decided that the people needed to recite the Apostles' Creed each week. They hadn't done that before. The words were not in their old Psalter. They were true Presbyterians here, okay? And there was no copier to print the words up too long to have to draw it out or write it out each week so the preacher did the next best thing he could think of he painted the apostles creed word by word on the blank wall on the right well roughly 25 30 years later she couldn't remember exactly the deacons decided that the sanctuary needed to be painted and they painted right over the apostles creed no one took the time to repaint the wall, uh, the letters on the wall or the words on the wall. But the people were so used to turning that way when they repeated the creed, everyone just continued to do it, even up to that present day. My point, just because it's in the Apostles' Creed or in any other man-made writing doesn't necessarily make it right. Now, I've got the spirits of a lot of Presbyterian pastors that just rolled over. <laughs> I may not live a comfortable life after, after all of this, okay? Not everyone's going to agree with that. Yet, because the term hell is translated in the Greek to mean Hades, and if you think of hell as being a legitimate separation from God in a narrow way, or that Christ's death and burial, along with a lot of the human existence that he experienced, must have been so painful that he would know what we would have to endure in our lives. If you looked at it from that point of view, there may be room for it. But do know this, and take great faith and comfort in knowing this. Jesus Christ paid the most extreme penalty, no matter what term we may use, so that we do not have to fear of anything or endure fear of anything that this world can throw at us. He died for us so that we truly might be able to live and live for Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You. We praise You for this morning. We praise You for Your Word. We ask your Holy Spirit to come into this place, and, and you have, and we thank you. We praise you, God, for it. And we just ask your blessings now upon us as uh, we mull all this over. It's a lot to uh, absorb in such a small statement. And yet, Father, you know, you know what we need to do. You know how we need to do it. You've given us your word, and you promised to be with us in all that we do. And that includes as we contemplate what you've written to us. So would you bless us to that end? And, just continue to strengthen us in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.